Welcome to another episode of Talking Kotlin, everybody. It's good to be back. And who's also back is Hadi. Hi, Seb. I don't feel so good today. I got to tell you. Why is that, Hadi? I hit my head in the on the kitchen counter. My, uh, I, I threw a treat for oh. my dog, the little one. And uh, it went under the kitchen counter, not kit- well, the, the cupboard. And I went to take it out for her because she was destroying the cupboard. And when I came up, I smashed my head. And that was literally like five, six minutes ago. So, yeah. Okay. If I suddenly, like, pass out, just... Call an ambulance? No. Continue recording. Address. No, continue recording. Oh, the show must and, go and on. The show must go on. Yeah, don't, That's don't, right. Don't worry about me. Um, but, uh, so, uh, how you been? Have you hit yeah, your head lately? No, <laughs> no. I I know it's hard to believe, but that's just that's just how I am. <laughs> okay, uh, you know what you yeah, need no, to do now. You need to I'm, get some I'm dogs. I, you need to get some dogs. Yeah, and then you your new your dog head. seems to be quite the quite the rascal. Don't, quite, don't even go there. Yeah, don't, causing don't, a lot of don't, menace. Don't. Yeah, okay. I know. Just don't. Uh, well, so uh, yeah, and uh, weather is nice here. Um, it's kind of sunny. Good. Yeah, uh, so we'll get that over and done with. And. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so where the way you are, Seth. Uh the weather is foggy and yeah, very mediocre. So I can't wait to actually talk about some Kotlin to distract me from all of that. So who do we have on the show today, Hadi? Yeah, absolutely. And before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors, which are the plastic little things to uh so these are to unscrew taps, right? Back in the old days, you used to take like a wrench. Now they, you have to buy these little plastic things. So thank you to our um, tap unscrewer sponsors for, for this uh, episode on Talking Kotlin. And yes, going to our guests. Today we have two guests with us, which is always fun, isn't it, Seth? <laughs> no, it's great. It's wonderful. It is great. Yes. That, well, I wasn't being sarcastic there. It's like, yeah, you know, no one shows, can ever tell, but sure. Show some emotion, Seth. Anyway, yes, our guests, uh, we have Catalin and we have Rarish with us from Adobe. Welcome, folks. How are you doing? Nice to be here, folks. Yeah. Should so I uh, start talking about... No, 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 no. no. <laughs> no. All we want to know is just a hello. Okay, and that was... Today's episode. So see you next time. <laughs> so here's a here's a here's a fun fun little story about me and and Adobe. So I I come from Germany and like you know how like middle schoolers they they work like on the school PCs with like the, all the like an old version of of Adobe products. And I don't think I've ever heard as many different pronunciations of a company name than I have for Adobe. I've heard people say like. Adobe. I've heard people say like Adobe, uh, and of course Adobe. So, and I think it took me until I was like seventeen till I realized that's how you pronounce it correctly. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> to be honest, uh, Seb, even people in uh, employees of Adobe here in Romania actually say Adobe from time to time. They probably speak French, and they probably believe that's an e mute. Because, yeah, that's what French is all about. Uh, throwing uh, some letters that you don't pronounce. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it kind of reminds me of the whole Delphi and Delphi wars we used to have back in the old days. People said, you know, on one side of the Atlantic, they used to call it Delphi, and on the other side, it was Delphi. Huh. So, yeah, there you go. But uh, cool. So you're both based in Romania. Correct. 
Whereabouts in Romania? Bucharest. Bucharest. The I was in. I was, I was there a few months ago. It was a. It was. It was. It was a wonderful trip from the um, airport to the hotel and back. It was. It was beautiful. I bet. Beautiful. I bet. Light traffic, <laughs> like really fast. Really Machinery fast. around. Yeah. Yeah, and I it's, don't want to mention the weather. Like but come, come to Romania, come to Bucharest. It's yeah, very and nice. I, and, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't want to mention the weather, but it was raining. So, yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, you can see it behind me now. It's actually very nice weather here. Unusually actually, nice. behind you, I can see a mirror in which I can then see a reflection of some window where I exactly. see trees. But yeah, okay. Yeah, it in looks the sun, like right? nice weather. Yeah. yeah. There is light. There is light at the end of the trees. Right. Uh, did, did you get that? No, never mind. Okay. So before we go on, each of you, a little intro about yourselves, what positions you hold, what you do at uh, Adobe or Adobe or Le Adobe. <laughs> uh, I can start, Rares, if you don't mind. So I'm Katarin. Uh, I'm actually a group manager at Adobe, uh, where I currently manage several teams, uh, all of them dealing with... Uh, Server-side, data-intensive applications, high-throughput, low-latency applications, streaming processing kind of stuff, and uh, that sort of jazz. And I'm Radesh. Uh, I'm uh, with Adobe, I believe, for uh, eight years now. And uh, much of this time, I've uh, been working on uh, with Catalin building uh, uh, the data collection infrastructure for uh, some Adobe products. Um, and uh, more recently, in the last three years or so, uh, we've been working together to build the next generation uh, Adobe Edge uh, data collection for the marketing products uh, of Adobe. Could you uh, just maybe tell for our listeners what the marketing products from Adobe are? Yeah. That's uh, probably the unknown side of Adobe because everybody knows about uh, the creative stuff uh, from Photoshop. Probably everybody has an un unlicensed or used to have because right now you can't anymore. Uh, so uh, Adobe also has a big business in uh, marketing, uh, uh, digital marketing. So that means uh, analytics, uh, personalization, uh, targeting, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so... These uh, require uh, huge deployments. We have uh, application deployed uh, globally, presence in more than eight or nine regions around the globe. Uh, huge deployments processing billions of events per day. I mean, the biggest one uh, where we usually hit in the in the uh, late season each year when it's uh, Black Friday and uh, Christmas and everything. 70 billion was the latest uh, high mark for the day in, in one of our services. So, wow. so basically, uh, um, yeah, you can think of it like this. Every company out there who has an application also needs a way to understand how much of their visitors uh, are returning back in five days. And to ask that question and to give an answer, there has to be some data collection and... Uh, infrastructure put in place to collect that data and be able to then uh, query it and get insights from it at, at a very high scale. So that's the platform we are we are building or working on deals with that kind of problem. 
Okay. And so I guess this, this was kind of born out of your own need and uh, you're now providing this services to others, right? Uh, 10 years ago, yeah. Adobe.com yeah, did ago. that for internal, uh, for internal purposes, but then that internal problem, it became apparent it's actually a very general problem to solve. And uh, Adobe invested a lot in uh, providing this for a whole set of customers. Many of them you probably have heard of, but I'm not going to mention here. Nice. <laughs> okay. So just for uh, a little bit of context before we dive into the technical side, uh, how big is Adobe as a company in, in like the engineering parts especially? So I'll say orders of magnitude, just not to refer to specific numbers, although I think you can find that in, on Glassdoor or something like that. It's going to be tens of thousands of engineers uh, in the R&D, let's say, portion of the company. Uh, currently, our business unit, for example, has uh, currently something like more than 1,000 engineers involved only in this uh, platform side of things. Yeah, uh, the reason we're asking this to to give some context is because, obviously, most of us assume that Adobe is is a large company, right? Uh, and uh, the challenge that has always been from uh, our users has been how do I introduce a technology like Kotlin in a large company? So that's the context, right? So it, it's not a little shop in Bucharest with, with 15 people, okay, people? Adobe is a little bit larger than that by orders of magnitude. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it is. And that's why we were, we are here to talk about exactly about this problem, because it's not an easy problem, I would say, to uh, to go around in a, oh, in a larger enterprise. I love that. Like, I love that. I love hard problems. Yes, yes, yes. Tell and, us the horror stories. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, uh, Harry, I, it, actually, this becomes, in my mind, becomes to be a problem when you go past uh, 100 people and or 500 people you don't have to be 10,000 people to have this problem in in places where you go more than 10 or 20 teams introducing new technology starts to become a challenge so then here comes the obvious question how did you do it <laughs> uh i think the the shortest answer to this is slowly which is probably not what folks who like to use Kotlin in an enterprise tomorrow would like to hear. But it's the reality. Um, I'll talk about my experience with it, and then I'll let Radish go into the finer details. So uh, a bit of history or, or a recap here. Um, both me and Radish work in a group currently, and specifically this business unit we are part of and build this platform. It's, I would say, 80% a JVM shop, uh, where Java and Scala, for good reasons, are the accepted uh, languages. Uh, Java, because, okay, it's, it's probably a good choice for an as an enterprise language, and uh, Scala, because it had all the streaming processing momentum behind it uh, a while back. And uh, I had, let's say, the opportunity to work with teams that used uh, both of these languages, and even a bit more than that, and uh, kind of uh, uh, had an observing position where I saw the dynamics of uh, uh, these two different groups, like um, 
teams that were using uh, Java, but were fighting, uh, not fighting because these are teams that enjoyed using Java. But when you look back at it, it's Java plus uh, some annotation processors to go around uh, some uh, limitations of the language. Everybody knows about Immutable or Lombok or that sort of uh, frameworks. And then uh, maybe some um, RxJava or Reactor thrown in there for good measure for uh, asynchronous uh, processing pipelines. And end of the day, you're looking at a project which is not that, which is, is Java, but has a lot of external frameworks and tools added to it so that it's a bit not better Java. than what standard Java is, right? Yeah. And then on the other hand, uh, on the other side, we had, I had teams with Scala. I also a big promoter of Scala at the time, um, started from personal experience. Like the language a lot, and it's something I'm, I'm going to say something that everybody knows already. Uh, learning curve for Scala is high. It's, uh, it's, I, don't, I don't think that's something that people debate anymore. It's a powerful language and a beautiful language at that, but it has a high entry bar uh, to, to add into it. And between the, at that moment, this was, I don't know, how, how many years ago was this? Like? Probably. Probably five or six years ago, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, something like what? that. So a long time ago, uh, in relative terms, uh, we um, actually, I uh, saw Kotlin at some point. Uh, I was watching uh, JetBrains newsletters and so on. I don't even know if it was uh, 1.0 at the time. It was close to, I guess. Um, and just I ne never thought of introducing it as a language in any of my teams. That thought didn't cross my, my mind at all. But I started using it for some personal projects. And what I realized in two weeks, uh, between being uh, relatively decent with Scala and having experience with Java, is that Kotlin was felt very natural. And I don't know what, I, I, I think it's hard for me right now to put a finger on what uh, how to how you can quantify the language feels natural for you. Uh, I would say that maybe the filter not null method helped <laughs> in uh, in the standard library or that sort of pragmatism that Kotlin added instantly. Um, but I started uh, kind of in different team meetings with uh, Rarish and other folks bringing it up that here I play with this language and I find it really cool. And I didn't do anything less, by the way, at the time. And we were still considering you crazy at that time, Katrina. I mean, I'll be fair with you. I mean, I never, I was a non-believer, I have to admit, because I was, uh, everybody, yeah, probably so, everybody has uh, its past mistakes. Okay, so take take us, uh, let, let's, let's examine Catalan's mistakes. Why were you a non-believer? What was pushing you away from it? I was, I was frankly, uh, believing at that time that uh, Scala momentum in, in our org is, uh, is just too big and focusing on something else is just a waste of effort. I was probably ignoring the fact that now, if I look back at it, I, I remember how it was the uh, ramp up that Kathleen was uh, talking about in, in Scala. Pretty much everybody had to start with uh, uh, functional programming in Scala, the, the famous and very good uh, course uh, that Martin Hodersky has on Coursera, 
but practically that was the bar we kind of had internally. Uh, it, it was hard for people to 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 uh, to get uh, up and running in in Scala projects. It was a big difference uh, in uh, uh, in the way you you have to think about writing code or the way you write it. Uh, uh, it is uh, uh, functional programming first and uh, whereas in Kotlin, I believe Kotlin takes you as you are. If you if you like uh, imperative, because that's how you mentally structure uh, pretty much everything, uh, then here you go. You can you can be very fast and very uh, fast productive in Kotlin. Whereas in, in Scala, you struggle all the time to say where how how can I be. Uh, 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 if proficient, uh, do I have to uh, to always write uh, uh, functional programming to uh, to adhere to the language uh, uh, structures or yeah? But but I didn't see that at that time. I, I, I'll be fair. I mean, I was still believing that Katarina is wasting his time until I tried it myself, and uh, and I've enjoyed uh, so much. Uh, then I and after that, I probably started to. To to bring some more people uh, in this story. Okay, uh, so let me take a step back a second. You had uh, Java with a hodgepodge of different libraries and different things, as you mentioned, to kind of make Java not Java, right? And yeah. uh, that was uh, the incentive for you to look at Scala and try and introduce Scala, right? Is, is that uh, correct? Not necessarily. We also had Scala in parallel for other reasons, right? Scala was there for uh, stream processes uh, or big data processing done with Spark. It was the natural choice there. Okay. Uh, and people, there were two categories of people, I would say, to your point. People who used this hot pot of Java uh, frameworks and looked at Scala and said, this is our solution. And people who said, I invested 10 years of my career in Java I don't care about uh, that different paradigm, right? That's yeah. out there. So, the, and that, that's where, where I was uh, trying to get, get to, which is uh, if you had a bunch of people that you kind of took from the category of, I don't want to try anything new and put them into the scholar category. And then a couple of years down the line, you're like, well, you know, Maybe this isn't the best thing. Let's let's try Kotlin. Did you start to get some pushback of like, you know, we should have just stuck to Java and and not go through this mess? Because first you tell me Scala, now you're saying Kotlin. Did you did you suffer any of that? Yeah. So to maybe though I would say uh, and Rares hinted on this. I was in no position to push for things. Maybe this sounds strange for me. Uh, coming from, I, I am the group manager here, but I, I have, I think, zero power to dictate technology in this group, and that has to come more from senior people like Rarish in the team and so on. And that I think was Rarish was the one who actually took the language from a personal pet passion of mine <laughs> to something more. I mean, to be clear, when I say push, I don't mean force people. I mean kind of advocate for it and 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 persuade yeah. people and and that right. Yeah, and uh, we got actually we got a bit of uh, pushback in both transitions. People moving from Java to Scala, 
and uh, some of them uh, saying or asking uh, questions around and being in a way realistic about it. It takes me a long time to get proficient with this. Do we really need it? Because, for example, we also have a Java API for Spark, right? Um, and uh, people actually, uh, in a, the other way around, people moving from uh, Scala to Kotlin, you have Radish here who can, because he did all of that, who can talk about that part. I, I, I probably tried them all, but I never been, uh, the, the most involved I've ever been was, was, was the with, with Kotlin. I mean, I, I remember we have a, a nice thing in Adobe. I'm sure maybe other companies have it. Other the ones that don't have it, they should copy it. We we call it a garage week, twice a twice a year or even maybe more. Uh, it's an entire week when you where you can build stuff and try new things. Um, and I remember one of the failed garage weeks. Uh, we were trying uh, a few more folks to do something. Uh, with Scala, and it didn't work out. I mean, we spent half of the time to to just get our uh, uh, stuff together. Whereas the second time around, when we tried uh, something with Kotlin, the experience was a lot different. I mean, it, it felt natural, as Katarina was saying. We we actually won that Garrett week. I mean, we had the the project was fun. Uh, I'm not sure if Kotlin directly. Uh, contributed to that, but maybe it did because we we were able to cover uh, so much uh, and, and faster, and and that that probably was the thing that that caught me, uh, and and I I frankly became an advocate for this. Uh, it was carriage week initially with a few folks around me, and then I had to to, to take the crazy step on, on doing it on a mission critical project. Anybody has to do that, I believe, at some point. I was encouraged by the fact that uh, uh, we were we were due to do a POC to to present to folks, and it literally uh, I was able to uh, to use Kater at that time, uh, looking for fun fun frameworks, and I enjoyed it a lot on how you how and how fast you can prototype uh, something with it. Uh, I, I still remember the people's reaction in the room uh, while while showing them the prototype. One of the guys said. This is the most beautiful Jason I've ever seen. Everybody knows that Jason is not is not beautiful, but but the fact that they show the thing uh, up and running so quickly that was impressive. Uh, and I believe again, it was Kotlin, it was Kater. There were things that contributed to that, for sure. So when you when you say you built a, a proof of concept there uh does it mean that your first line of of code that went into production was that a completely separate service or did you kind of like sneak that in as a part of of a, of a larger system how did that work there was a this was a new project so we sneaked okay. it in the main project that was about <laughs> to to go to production that was the bold move or crazy or but I mean, actually, I think, uh, Seb, you have a great point there because it maybe hints to some recommendation we're going to have at the end. How do you start with this, right? Do you start uh, with your mission-critical project, write your first line and code and push it? That's surely not it. Because when I would say, Radish, keep me honest here, but by the time you did the POC yeah. for our Edge Network, we're talking about a span of two years 
of Radish and team having building like tooling, small projects, CLIs, test frameworks using Kotlin. So it's not, we, I think, yeah, I would, probably nobody will say, no matter the size of the company, to go with a new language and try it in production, see how it works. Yes. <laughs> that's that's granted. Surprisingly, many people have actually, but uh, yeah. Probably, yeah. yeah. Maybe we can talk about that uh, afterwards because even production is an, a whole other set of uh, challenges there that even when you think you are proficient with the technology, it can, uh, can surprise you a bit as well. Yeah, you're right. It was not, uh, we were not that crazy. I was, I was simplifying things. But the point is that once you experiment for a while, it, it, it probably requires someone to take a, such a, I don't know, bold decision and, and promote it uh, uh, a little a little further. And frankly, we struggle. I mean, it wasn't, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get to this uh, anyways. I mean, I, I, I have lots of good words to say about Kotlin and our experience for sure. But initially, we had our bumpy road. Uh, I wouldn't say it, it was that critical or uh, something that blocked us uh, a lot, but I mean, I'm talking about maybe three years ago. Tooling was uh, less less efficient. Uh, debugging, uh, <laughs> I still remember folks uh, with uh, uh, in our asynchronous application with Cater doing debugging, and all of a sudden they say the debugger doesn't stop. We are joking around. Maybe maybe the debugger suspended themselves uh, as well. I mean, you, you were probably in a suspended Ouch. function, so that <laughs> yeah, that happened. That happened. Oh. I heard music to my ears. Uh, I heard the word Ktor. Um, we we got to touch on Ktor. So yeah, I'm making notes sure. about the Ktor thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, Ktor, I I still love it. I mean, uh, and I'm not the only one. Uh, it, it was it was such a good fit for for our project then, because it's so modular in itself and and our application had to be modular. And I will be honest, we we borrowed much of Kator to, to build our own business logic. And what, that went so great. Uh, and the end result is extensible and, uh, and uh, very, very easy to maintain and decoupled and whatnot. We, we like it a lot. Uh, we but, also, yeah. No, I was going to say, let, that's, Again, let's get an overview of like, because you've talked about an application that processes 70 billion events, right? Um, but we're not, we haven't really, you know, discussed what type of applications you are actually creating uh, at Adobe. Because they're, they're all, we're assuming they're all server-side, right? Uh, but what are they? Like, what technologies, what frameworks are they using under the covers? Yeah, okay. So for for let's um, keep it uh, in basically to the level of our group, I would say, because there are teams out there who build mobile applications with Android and Kotlin, but... We don't care about mobile. For, for us, <laughs> <laughs> for us uh, specifically, it is... Uh, uh, these are uh, server-side applications uh, that do some... 
data processing. Uh, I'll talk about two services here because one of them, Rarish Tachton, is, is the POC, was the POC that two years later uh, is now the production service. And the other, which is maybe similarly interesting, I would say is, uh, a, I almost said legacy application, it's not legacy. It's an application that was built with Java uh, and Jetim and went through some serious transformations in six years, getting to Rx Java, asynchronous Jetty, and then uh, in the past two years, even moved the asynchronous processing part to, or many parts of the of the system to um, Kotlin and coroutines. And we have both sides of the story here. I would say it's it's uh, uh, it's the old application that was migrated to coroutines, and maybe we can talk about the benefits we saw out of that. And we have the new application that we built, that uh, Rares and his team built uh, from scratch using uh, Ktor uh, and Kotlin from the get-go and coroutines. Okay, and those short, were... Sorry, just, a, just a short little question so that maybe our uh, listeners also get the context. When you talked about the 70 billion events processing uh, project uh, or service, uh, which one of those is that? <laughs> You can you can guess I I would say is the Java one that got migrated, which makes it in a way an even more interesting story because all those changes that happen in an application that I think now has more than nine years or ten years, something like that, um, had to come also with a lot of care about how do you roll those changes to production in a safe way? How do you how do you do performance and cost analysis and all that stuff? Makes sense. So I'm sure that, that Hadi has a couple of follow-up questions in, in that kind of prod into the details a little more. But just so that I can kind of see the road ahead of where we're going. At at this moment, where where is that service? Is it is it fully Kotlin? Is it Kotlin and a mix of other things? Uh, where is it standing? And what frameworks? Hmm. One is, is not using Kator. I will disappoint you there. We, we chose ver <laughs> we chose Vertex. I, I can't I'm, remember. I'm super sorry, but but Hadi already saw the headline for this episode. 70 billion events in Ktor. <laughs> he already saw it. You've crushed his dream. No, Harry, Harry, that's there's there's a silver lining here. The, sorry, the, phone the, call, I gotta go. I'm not interested <laughs> the, anymore. The the new application, the new application we were talking about using Ktor, that is expected to 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 handle more than 100 billion calls per day. Oh, there you uh, go, the baby. There, there you go. There you go. <laughs> But it's not because guaranteed. maybe for context, uh, what uh, Radish is building right now, the uh, edge data collection layer has multiple components. But one of the components that he talks about, the the Kotlin one with Ktor, is actually a server-side aggregation framework, uh, a service that sits on top of all these other older data collection layers and kind of unifies it. Think. Uh, uh, it's not GraphQL, but it's the same concept, right? Getting data or sending data, dispatching into multiple downstream systems asynchronously and getting it back, composing it to a single view for the for the client. So that's why at the end, this application, when we roll out gradually to all, uh, to all customers, is going to cover the combined traffic of Adobe, which is currently more than 100, 100 billion calls per day. 
Okay, so I'm just composing the tweet from Kato right now. Is, <laughs> is it? <laughs> okay, so I apologize for the interruption. I just really had to make that comment. You said, uh, Rarish, that you chose Vertex. Do continue. <laughs> yeah, we chose, we chose Vertex. Uh, and, and frankly, I believe one of the reasons we chose it... Uh, I mean, we were we were at the beginning with Kator as well, but from our early testing back then, I remember how uh, you, I, one thing nice about Kator that is that you have many options and everything is pluggable. You have a three or four uh, HTTP clients out of the box, and and finding a performant one was critical for us. So we we tried them all, and in the end, we we discovered that that building one on top of Vertex actually. Uh, 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 and then plugging plugging it into Cater was the best option for us because it was fully asynchronous. Uh, the others, I mean, depending on the option, HTTP, OK, HTTP, you have a PyTorch as well. Yeah, Some of them a lot. have have a have a uh, more of a traditional non-event driven uh, way of handling the HTTP call. So it hits a bit your throughput. So Working on that thought, we said, let's try Vertex end-to-end uh, -end on, on this project. Uh, I'll be honest, I mean, that was a bumpy round because with Keter, we already knew a lot of things. Um, and we, we faced some challenges with Vertex uh, on the HTTP front. So although the HTTP client was great, on the, on the web framework itself, we struggled with, uh, I mean, at some point, I remember we, we enabled some monitoring or uh, instrumentation, and that took 20% of our throughput. And why? Because it was uh, using a lock for uh, for metrics. And I, we were like, what's going on here? I mean, things you wouldn't expect. Uh, you probably have these even in old and mature frameworks. But the, the, again, to sum up, we said this is a huge production project. Uh, we'll probably have a hard time to be uh, to be running it only with uh, with uh, new and shiny things. Let's let's see if we can bring coroutines and Kotlin alongside with a more established framework as a combination to to convince people that we're we're doing and good business here. Part of it was also to answer Seb's question initially is that this project was and still is a mix of Kotlin and Java. It's not a it's it was not a full rewrite. We wouldn't embark on that. I think uh, Rarish and team had the right approach there where instead of proposing a rewrite, which probably even I would have said no to, they proposed uh, wrapping up the critical part of part of the dispatching of, uh, of calls and receiving of calls into Kotlin coroutines and leaving the other part of the domain let's say untouched the business logic in java and stuff like that and how did the adoption of uh coroutines kind of go for you because i know that there's a, a there's quite a paradigm shift between writing reactive applications and then going to kind of the more uh more uh, imperative approach that coroutine gives but that obviously comes with its own challenges how did that go that is a good question because, uh, uh, I mean, I, I'll be honest, there were many things where we struggled with Reactor and Rx Java. I mean, just having consistent logging, such a small thing, MDC everywhere. 
there is such a nafta truth in that in that framework that is hard to get. And then it, I know this is something that annoys Roman uh, uh, Elizarov whenever he he hears it. In Kotlin, by by contrast, you just try to suspend a function, and all of a sudden it's it's asynchronous, and you, all of, all your problems go away. No, that's that's far from being true. It, it's is, but but the other aspect is that uh, you don't you don't have to learn about everything to the depth of coroutines from get go. I remember we were working with Kater. And there's a famous component there, suspend function gun uh, at the heart of uh, of, uh, of Kater. <laughs> and we we said, you know what? For coroutines, you probably are you're, you're a beginner, or you know how to write suspend function gun. That that was our that was our scale, frankly. That was it was daunting. Look, looking at it, I mean, but that's that's something that is. When you go into the guts of the API, you have to know in and out of the Coroutines API. Uh, just writing efficient, uh, efficient code, uh, asynchronous uh, code with with uh, uh, Kotlin and Coroutines and structured programming. Uh, I mean, that is uh, structured concurrency. That is the thing that I I feel helps uh, a, a lot and helped a lot. I mean, okay, you you still have to understand what is. Supervising of Joe. Why? Why is this thing hanging? Why isn't uh, going away? Uh, what do I have to do to to close things up? You you learn by doing, though. And uh, and with the much improved debugger right now, you you can see things that are still hanging, and probably you can guess why they are hanging. Uh, and a, a stack trace still makes more sense though in coroutines and in the in the IntelliJ at least. Than it does for Reactor, or than it did, did for Reactor three months, three years ago. I remember those, well, looking at those and then and, and whatever. It's, <laughs> it's not us. It's something there. Yeah. So uh, how how would I sum it, sum it up? I mean, I feel you 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 get a sense of doing things uh, very easily with coroutines, but the reality is that. Once, once you uh, solve more and more complex issues, you have to go and look into things like uh, how a dispatcher maybe uh, works. Uh, uh, how is it uh, the, the threads being uh, uh, used for uh, I/O or non-I/O context, and uh, how fa- how how much do I get in uh, context switch maybe, and why do I get it, and stuff like that. Uh, no. Rarish, I would say that's true for any framework out there. Yeah, and it's true. This is, this is actually, because you touched on this, I want to say this. Understanding how things work internally, a big thing, once you go uh, over a certain threshold you, with your application and try to understand uh, deeply how it behaves, you go to get that point. I think part of our uh, case, when we did the Kotlin adoption case in Adobe, part of it was this co- comparison between um, uh, or a section of the case was comparing uh, Scala and Kotlin, and why would you use each? But uh, there was a section there that uh, Radesh and I identified at the time was the implementation of, of the map function, and it was it was basically map function in Kotlin, iterable map. You look at it; everybody can read it and understand what it does. 
then you go to the implementation in Scala and the, it's probably something that uh, creators of the language um, understand really well, but many people don't. And I actually tried this. I went with the map implementation and went to the people who are really proficient with, uh, in Scala and asked to see what happens there. And the, it was a lot at the time because we're talking in Scala 2.11, uh, that changed meanwhile. It was a lot to understand. I, I would say it was impossible to understand. So maybe that is actually part of the Kotlin appeal for uh, for us as well, is that it, when you need to go deeper into the language, you're still in maybe in familiar, advanced, but familiar territory. You're except, not except, crossing a threshold. Except, like, yeah, except for a suspend function gun, but that's a different story. No, <laughs> I have a question I'm though, joking. because yeah, so, Obviously, anything that you learn to how it works under the covers, you're going to get more insight and 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 uh, understand better. But the question is, the ramp up time to go with coroutines and to get the I don't know, let's say eighty percent of the job done. Did do you still find that that is true? And do you find that the code and the things that people have written during this eighty percent? is not wasted when you need to go to that, I don't know, 20% and, and look under the covers and fine tune things. That, am I making myself clear with what I'm trying to ask? Yes. Okay. Uh, I still consider the biggest win for us to be asynchronous programming with coroutines. I mean, frankly, if it wasn't that story, it would be hard. Just, just talking about uh, sugar syntax and uh, data classes and removing uh, immutables and Lombok, that probably doesn't convince many people. But frankly, we did internal uh, internal talks, tech talks, and we showed to people, here's our, one of our applications, it's using Reactor, and try to make a sense of this business logic because it was pretty much impossible to do. And then we we liked trans, trans, uh, written it, in, uh, wrote it in, in uh, Kotlin and Coroutines, and they were shocked but first, about how easy it is to, to bring Kotlin to a project. I'm not sure why people thought that it was a difficult task. They were like, okay, that's quite easy. Then they could actually follow and read and understand what that application is doing. There's no ceremony around it or that much ceremony. And that that is a huge advantage. I mean, I will still pay the cost of digging through the details of on the on that twenty percent of the time, as you as you said, to have this benefit of uh, maintainability and uh, easier ramp up for new people and uh, be productive e easier on an application. Uh, on a let's be fair, on a complex application because any asynchronous pro uh, application is more complex than a traditional one in many ways. So. Unfortunately, we are running out of time for this episode, uh, so I do want to wrap up, but I want to ask one more big picture question, uh, and that is, what does Kotlin at Adobe look like today? We've kind of figured that part out, I think, pretty well, at least for your team. Uh, but also, what does uh, Kotlin at Adobe look like tomorrow? And especially also in regards to, you know, are you trying to push the things that you've you've learned here to to other teams and kind of advocate a little bit more uh, how's that looking yeah unfortunately we talked only about the history part of things but reality is two years ago we actually went through a 
to a standard process in Adobe to introduce technology, new technology that has to be approved by different architects in different uh, different groups. The process tries to be as objective as possible, although it's hard. And uh, whenever you, you go through that process, and we went with it with Kotlin, it's a catch-22 problem most of the time, because one of the things you have to show there is usage and experience using it and the benefits of the technology you're introducing it. Um, but in order to use the technology at scale, you have to get approval for the technology. You see what's the, the challenge there, right? So we had, uh, but we were fortunate that uh, we had this experience in, uh, in isolation a bit with uh, a few teams trying it out, having use out of it at, uh, at large scale for specific problems like that rewrite of the, of the big service I not rewrite, that enhancement of the big service uh, we had. And we, when we went there, we actually went with 20 people or so already using it with a, a, a big service seeing a lot of cost benefits because when you talk 70 billion calls per day, you also talk a lot of money being spent for that uh, service to be distributed uh, globally. And we showed some interesting numbers there at 25% improvement of time. Um, part of that case, uh, we talked about uh, about this subjective uh, feedback we had from our, from my teams, because I had the teams Java, Scala, Kotlin, and having feedback from people who went through all of the, all of it and said Kotlin is a better choice was good. But I think in that case, what hit most for people and why Kotlin was adopted as an incubation language, the status that it is in uh, now, was the interop story with Java because. It's uh, if you think about it, it's hard for uh, for an enterprise when you propose technology, new technology. You don't have you, you don't think about uh, syntax sugar, how easy it is to write code, and so on. You actually think about do I have uh, quality checks, uh, tooling in place? Uh, do I have the, does the runtime is well integrated? Uh, telemetry for this and so on. And for us, a big sell was, well, you have it for uh, you have it for Java, you have most of it for Kotlin as well. Build tooling integration and all that stuff comes for almost for free. Uh, you can adopt it incrementally. A big uh, a big sell. It's not you have to uh, do a leap. It's actually a small step for you to take. And uh, that was actually, uh, once we went through that process, and as I said, many folks didn't even knew that you can add Kotlin to a Java project by just adding a few lines in a, in a build file. That was something that people didn't quite get initially. But we went through that process with a long case describing all of this stuff, and uh, it was an easier sell. Probably if Kotlin didn't have that story, it wouldn't have passed the, the threshold because otherwise people were inclined to say for good reason, what can I do in um, Kotlin and I can't do in Scala, right? And that's or Java for that matter. So essentially right now, what you're saying is that Kotlin is an approved technology at Adobe and you can roll it out, no questions yeah. asked pretty much, which is really, it's, really it's, cool. It's Kotlin's an approved language in an incubation phase. There are a few, uh, let me explain a bit. Incubation means that because you asked what comes next, 
means that uh, after two years we can probably go and say okay let's promote this to the to the standard set of uh, technologies it's incubation because we did have some challenges back then that were still unanswered uh, is Kotlin for example uh, integrated with our code coverage analysis tools or our quality gate static checks the answer was well it's not because those tools that don't support yet uh, Kotlin uh, so it was a bit of there was a bit of a pushback from this perspective that um, think about uh, uh, a company who wants to see inventory of all their services and get data from what those services are doing in the entire software lifecycle. You want to have perfect tooling there or close to perfect tooling for all that stuff. And Kotlin was eighty percent there, I I would say, and it gets better and better. And the other thing is that. Uh, at the time, we were 20 people. I'd say this number actually uh, growed a lot because we were 20 people in a specific group. And now Kotlin actually expanded to many other groups. Uh, and to answer your question, you still have to, uh, to uh, check back with your director of engineering uh, to, to see if it's an approved technology. But we already gained uh, so much popularity that I think that's an easy threshold if you are willing to try it out. Okay, yeah, but I mean, I assume that if you have already stuff in production and you're putting other stuff that you're working on, oh, hoping for production, because if you have 100 billion requests in, in a test environment, <laughs> you're okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm assuming that it's, it's not that hard to get Kotlin into production now at, at Adobe, right? No. Okay. No, uh, cool. actually, currently Kotlin is used by many other teams besides uh, our group, uh, teams that uh, do anything from compliance work to, uh, I don't know, uh, server-side applications that manage configurations for and mobile for systems. And mobile. And mobile. And mobile, for sure. And mobile. Mobile. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, that's it. We're out of time. So um, thank you both for uh, joining us. I'm, I'm really happy this, this was wonderful because, you know, it's music to my ears. It's not only Kotlin. <laughs> it's also KTOR. It's just, it's just the whole package. Even having smashed my head on the kitchen counter an hour ago has, <laughs> has just disappeared. You see? You see? And they say placebo doesn't work. Of course it does. <laughs> All right. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate you being here. Uh, I think we've learned a lot. I think our listeners have also learned a lot. And our viewers have also learned a lot. Um, yeah, so thank you so much. And um, to everyone back at home, we uh, say thanks for tuning in. Uh, and hopefully we'll see you in a future episode. And don't forget to subscribe because we they make us say this. If we yeah. don't, they get angry. At, so at, hit at the bell point. and... Yeah, hit that like. Yeah. Until next time, folks. Bye bye.